This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 113, January 13, 1986. I shall begin today with a discussion of liability insurance, a very brief one. But we have a problem here locally in that we are in the mountains and there are ski resorts throughout the mountains above us, a few thousand feet above us, but still not too very far as miles go. Yesterday's paper, the Stockton Record for Sunday, January the 12th, 1986, had a long article on the ski resorts and their problems. I shall read just a couple of paragraphs. The stories are almost funny. There is the one about the five foot three, 240 pound man who skied onto a run marked closed, got hurt, and sued the area for, among other things, diminished sexual capacity. He won 250,000, his wife got 40,000. Then there's the one about the woman who, while skiing at Mammoth Mountain, was hit by another skier and sued an area 200 miles north. That wasn't because the woman was confused, but because the person who hit her was a member of the other area's ski team." Unquote. The article goes on to give a number of cases like that. And by the way, that first case, the 240-pound man who was only five foot three certainly must have had, with that kind of weight, diminished sexual capacity before he ever got on the ski slope. All this has created a very serious problem for the ski areas. One of them has had to shut down. Squaw Valley, for example, had its liability insurance go from 260000 to 910000 this year and how much longer they will be able to maintain such premiums is a question mark. As one of the leaders, the executive director of the Ski uh, Area Association, Bob Roberts, has said, what's happening in our society today is that people view misfortune as a windfall situation. They've won the lottery. And often they have an attorney out there pushing and shoving them on, unquote. That's the problem. And the net result is that liability insurance in the United States is becoming a major problem. Some municipalities have had to dissolve. No one will work for their police force or sanitation department or for any other position because they are no longer covered by liability insurance. Almost all schools are being canceled, and those that have not been canceled will probably be canceled by the end of the year or the end of the school year. And there seems to be no end in sight. One of the problems behind all of this is what a very fine Christian economist, Elgin Grossclose, who died two or three years ago, described as the hunger nowadays for a risk-free world. There are risks, no matter what you do, because life is not risk-free this side of heaven. Moreover, you're never going to find a perfect doctor who does not make a mistake. Go to the very best of them, and I submit, because we are human beings and because we are fallible, the best of us, whatever we are, a doctor, a dentist, or any other kind of professional man, will at times not perform up to full capacity and will make mistakes. We can't always perform at peak ability. 
I speak quite a few times in a year, almost 200. But there will be variations in the caliber of my speaking. Sometimes I feel that I'm right on target. Other times I feel that I did not do justice to the audience or to my topic, and it was not for lack of trying. The idea that we can have a risk-free world is an evil idea. The idea that we have the right to expect the best performance from everyone is ridiculous. None of us can deliver that kind of performance, and we have no right to expect it from anyone. Well, so much for that subject. I hope you stay out of court the next time you have a problem. And remember, this is a fallible world. A book I read last week, a very interesting book, is entitled The Specialist, Revelations of a Counter-Terrorist. The author's name, at least on the book, is Gail Rivers. And on the jacket we have in large letters, Does the United States Hire Assassins? This book is by one. Well, the book is not as lurid as that would state. However, he does cite a case in which he was hired when in 1983 a suicide truck bomb killed more than 200 U.S. Marines. He was hired by the United States, he himself is Australian, to lead a group into enemy territory to go after the pr uh, precise group responsible for the murder. He went after them and he got them. He does this on contract working with Britain, the United States, and other countries. He works against terrorists. Now, his point in this book, apart from the stories of his adventures, which are interesting enough, but his point could be summarized in a short article. The gist of it is this. We could eliminate terrorism very quickly. The troubles in North Ireland and Lebanon, the Middle East generally, and anywhere else in the world could be ended in a few weeks if we really went after the terrorists. But he says the civil rights lobby in every country says that you must not do thus and so, and the various civil governments are afraid to go after international terrorism as they should. His point is that there's a war on, and in a war you do not stop to read the enemy his rights before you shoot him. If you do, you're never going to have a chance of winning. And international terrorism is a form of warfare. In our time, wars are no longer, at least since 1950, by a formal declaration of war. People s simply start invading or killing an enemy. And terrorism is a form of warfare. So, says Rivers, we must recognize this fact. We must go after these people, not until we set aside the absurdities of the civil rights lobby as it deals with terrorists can we hope to cope with the situation. One very interesting aspect of his book is this. He says the terrorists all work together. Moreover, the funds they get, they don't take and use for themselves, because then it would be too easy to trace back to the donors. To confuse the various governments, 
For example, the money collected from the New York Irish for the IRA will be used for other terrorist groups in the Middle East or in the Mediterranean. And they, in turn, will channel some of their money to the IRA. Moreover, they will work together, providing their specialists to one another, so that if you have a group of terrorists, it makes no difference what their politics are. They all work together. As a result, as far as Gale Rivers is concerned, he says that he's against all these terrorist groups, that they are interested <clears throat> in perpetuating themselves with continual murder. Interesting in passing are his comments about British intelligence. He, although Britain is his home, has uh, no great regard for British intelligence. It's made up of too many stuffed shirts, he says. Moreover, they don't like to own up to what they are doing. They don't like, for example, to commission assassinations. And when they do commission them, they don't like to pay for them. They, he says, prefer to cling to the myth that killing is more honorable when it is done purely for queen and country. Moreover, he says, they are very obvious, so that when a spy is sent out by British intelligence, he is so obviously what he is that he's a dead giveaway. The best of the intelligence groups are the Spanish. And this goes back to the beginnings of it under General Franco. General Franco set them up very ably and with consummate skill. And they still continue on the high order of performance and excellence. But he said the uh, British are convinced that anyone who's a Latin cannot be efficient, and that efficiency is an English trait. Whereas in reality, the English intelligence is by and large inefficient, the Spanish highly efficient. On to something along a like vein, we've dealt with the lack of realism that has led to the proliferation of terrorism. We cannot treat it as warfare because we're determined to extend civil liberties to everyone. And as a result, it, the situation is made to order for the terrorists. In the Wall Street Journal for December 12, 1985, there is an interesting item by Austrian writer-philosopher, really a political scientist, but this is how they identify him, Eric von kunau Ladin, a most gracious Christian gentleman. Dorothy and I used to see him almost every year, but our paths have not crossed for some time. Let me quote a portion of what he says with respect to World War I. The result of the American intervention in 1917, the throwing of America's weight on one side of the scales, was a temporary victory of democracy more or less imposed where it had no roots. One has to bear in mind that on the continent of Europe, none of the great minds, except certain literati, had democratic convictions. They all were, quite naturally, elitists of one form or another. In Russia, the Democratic Republic lasted six months. In Germany, 15 years. By 1922, the very weak Italian monarchy was subordinated to a popular dictator. The Spanish Republic succumbed after almost four years. The Portuguese, after less than 16. Poland and Hungary had benevolent dictatorships as did more or less all of southeastern Europe. The Chinese Republic, founded in 1912, ended 
in chaos. The Americans who died in Europe to make the world safe for democracy had indeed died in vain, unquote. Kunat Ladin's point is very well taken. The problem with intellectuals like Wilson was that they viewed things abstractly in detachment from the realities of the human scene. They were, in effect, asking people without legs to get up and run, people without any tradition in a Republican form of government are incapable of moving into it out of a background of tyranny. And the results of such expectations are totally absurd and evil. Well, along the same vein, a very important book edited by Charles Mosier, M-O-S-E-R, is titled Combat on Communist Territory. It was published in 1985 by Regnery Gateway in connection with the Free Congress Research and Education Association. The book, in essence, has one purpose, to deal section by section with the resistance to communism in various parts of the world, Lithuania, the Ukraine, Nicaragua, Mozambique, Angola, Afghanistan, Cambodia, Grenada, the anti-socialist movement in the USSR, and so on. But at the heart of the book is this fact. Uh, Brezhnev proclaimed the doctrine, the Brezhnev doctrine, according to which the Soviet Union will not permit territories once conquered for communism to revert to any other form of government ever again. But before he did so, this was already the policy of the U.S. State Department and much of the American establishment. In 1976, says the editor, a leading appointee of Henry Kissinger's, Helmut Sonnenfeld, even formulated the American counterpart of the Brezhnev Doctrine, that Western interests are best served if the Soviet Union enjoys undisturbed the benefits of the territories it dominates, unquote. This is a very telling book. The section on the post-World War II resistance within the Soviet Empire and the anti-socialist movement in the USSR today is alone worth the price. I urge you to get this book and read it. It tells us how evil our present policy is. And the sad fact is that the Reagan administration has only gone further in agreeing with the Brezhnev doctrine. Unfortunately, too, as the authors point out, Brzezinski, in his book Between Two Ages, made this statement, I quote, In the gradual evolution of man's universal vision, Marxism represents an important and progressive stage as the appearance of nationalism and of the great religions, unquote. In other words, Marxism is a necessary stage in the evolution of mankind. With that kind of doctrine, they're going to go along with a Brezhnev doctrine. To another book now, one published, I believe, in 1983, Michael Kettle, K-E-T-T-L-E. Sidney Riley, The True Story of the World's Greatest Spy. 
a very interesting book because this, the most recent written on Riley, confines itself to two things. One, exploding the myth of Riley's uh, origins, myths that he himself created. He was actually born Sigmund Georgievich Rosenblum, born to a wealthy Polish-Jewish family in 1874. He created quite a few myths about his origin. A most remarkable man. The interesting thing is that after having objected to Savinkov going back when the trust after the Bolshevik Revolution lured Savinkov back, Riley, knowing full well what the trust was, went back. He had seen the Allies give in to communism, unwilling to overthrow it when they could have more than once. And he felt that since the West was not ready to defend itself or its own survival, Perhaps something could be done internally to reorganize the Bolshevik regime. If he could not defeat it, he would try to reorganize it. Apparently, there were some within the regime who were agreeable. In terms of that, he went back. He was treated as a prisoner, but as a guest at the same time. He would take long walks day after day with some of the leaders, but Stalin wanted him executed and had him executed, and that ended everything. But Britain was concerned. Riley was the greatest agent they ever had, the greatest agent anyone ever had. The British intelligence had never treated him too well. As a result, they were fearful how much he may have disclosed to the Russians, perhaps to buy his life. For example, when Khrushchev and Boganin visited England in 1956, Kettle says, Sir Anthony Eden asked if there if they had any news of the fate of Riley. There was no response to this request. However, one thing they do know, while he gave them little bits of information, none of them very significant, about British intelligence in order to buy time, he did tell them one thing. He told them if they wanted to take over British intelligence, they should go to Oxford and recruit young men to go into British intelligence. And that is how the homosexual network came into British intelligence. Men of aristocratic background, highly educated background, who went to the top and betrayed England at every turn. In other words, Riley knew their weak point, their trust in prestige, in people of importance. Another important work, this published in 1984, is by Stephen Saunders Webb. The title... 1676, the end of American independence. Now, 1676 is a hundred years before 1776 and the War of Independence. When the various colonies were established, they were all chartered, that is, constitutional orders. They had a considerable measure of independence. They were never under Parliament, either before or after 1676. They were under the crown 
but even there the power of the crown was limited. But at that time, they were facing savage warfare on the frontier. We're not used to hearing much about that, but the fighting cost more lives in proportion to population than any other war in American history, and it wiped out an entire generation of frontier settlements. So it was grim fighting as the Indians united against the colonists. The Algonquins and the Iroquois as a result of this, the American colonists were ready to call for help from England. And England at that time was ready to give help in return for taking away independence. A lot of the colonists knew what they were getting but they went along with it. And as a result, American independence disappeared to a considerable extent. It was there on paper, but much of it had been surrendered. A very significant book about trading security, trading freedom for security. We began this easy chair with a discussion of liability insurance. The desire of men for a risk-free world. Well, in 1676, we traded freedom for security. The freedom meant real problems. It meant sudden death on the frontier. But the alternative was that we came very or close to losing freedom permanently. We are today at a similar crossroad. We are trading uh, freedom away for security, and it may have lasting repercussions. On to a radically different subject now, the Playboy Empire. A book on the subject by Victor Lowndes, L-O-W-N-E-S, The Day the Bunny Died, published in 1982 and 1983. I don't have any use for the book as a whole, or for Lowndes especially, although he was very important to the Playboy empire. He was an executive in it for 26 years and he helped to build the Playboy Enterprises from a magazine pasted together on a kitchen table into an empire worth several hundred millions. In fact, in 1981, the casinos he managed contributed $32 million of profit to the company. In that year, the other Playboy Enterprises did badly and showed a total profit, including Lowndes' operation, of $31 million. In other words, he was keeping it alive because he contributed $32 million of profit to the company, which showed total profits of $31 million. Very shortly thereafter, he was fired. But my concern with the book is something else, something that I think is most interesting. Because apart from their financial problems, the Playboy Empire has had problems in the political sphere. Problems because at a key point, it was honest. When they went into New York City some years back to establish one of their first Playboy clubs there, the State Liquor Authority demanded payoffs. They were told, first of all, 50000 
Then the executive in question said a payment of 100000 would be appreciated as well as an option to buy a further $100,000 worth of Playboy stock and the right to open a chain of gift shops in all Playboy clubs. Well, they went along with it very carefully and then filed a legal complaint. And a long legal battle began, lasting two years. A grand jury finally handed down a vote of thanks to the Playboy Empire for having the courage to fight the extortion racket. It meant, of course, that uh, some of the people were convicted, although I believe there was a reversal in a higher court. At any rate, for years thereafter, they paid a price whenever they applied for a license. They became the target of all kinds of innuendos and so on. So the Playboy empire was hurt more by its honesty than by its pornography. That does not say much for the kind of world we are now living in. Another book, an older book, in a different vein. This one by Harold E. Cohn, K-O-H-N. Best Wishes, published in 1969, has some lovely things to say. I don't agree with the man's theology at some key points, but all the same, I did feel that... Uh, some of his chapters were particularly uh, lovely. I'd like to read portions of one. I quote, All across the land, orchards clothe their naked limbs with a superabundance of leaves. Horticulturists estimate that it takes 30 leaves to make a Jonathan apple and 50 to produce a big delicious apple. About 30 leaves are required to make a large peach. However, mature apple trees will be equipped with about 100,000 leaves apiece, many more than each tree will need to produce its fruit or to do its work of lifting out of the earth four gallons of water per tree each hour. This abundance of reserve leaves is to make the tree adequate to any time of crisis. Succulent leaves will attract many insects. The larvae of moths, butter butterflies, sawflies, and beetles will attack and consume foliage, reducing the tree's capacity for manufacturing food. So, each healthy tree produces a total leaf surface that is far greater than its anticipated need, so that if a considerable number of its leaves are destroyed, the tree can still survive. All through nature, a tendency can be found to produce reserves. Quails, pheasants, ducks, and other ground-nesting birds lay more eggs than are necessary to perpetuate their race. So that if some eggs are destroyed by marauding crows or plundering skunks or mink, enough will survive to compose a small family. A female brook trout may lay 5,000 eggs to assure the preservation of the species, since some eggs will be infertile and many young will be prey to other fish and will not live to see their first birthday. Nature insists upon reserves to assure continuation of the race. When man is wise, he too plans upon an abundance of reserves. Merrily enough strength to get by will never do. Before I go on at this point, I'd like to answer a question since this is early January, that uh, 
several of you asked, how many books do I read in a year? <laughs> well, in 1985, I read exactly 333 books. Now, books are my tools, so I do read constantly. When I say I read 333, I mean I read 333 with a pencil and a ruler in hand and index the books and the back flap. A good many other books that I get I browse in for from half an hour to two or three hours and then shelve. I often go back to them a year or two or three or sometimes ten years later as I feel the need for what that book had to say. And then I study it uh, much more carefully. Books are my tools. I enjoy them. Just as a man who loves to work with wood prizes his tools and takes good care of them, books are my tools, and I prize them. I'm proud of them. I enjoy them. Now on to something else that uh, my wife Dorothy asked me to talk about. It's a personal matter. All of us, when we do anything that's worthwhile are bound to accumulate some kind of opposition. That's to be expected. If you don't have any opposition, obviously you aren't doing much that amounts to anything. Well, I've had my share of opposition over the years. But in recent years, I've had some who wished me dead, so to speak, so they could take over and uh, claim to be my successors and my heirs and so on. And their attitude has been that, uh, well, uh, Rush Dooney is fine, but don't you know he's getting old and uh, not able to do much anymore. I am, by the way, more active than I've ever been. And also, and this statement has been made in print, that uh, maybe senile. Now, I don't take kindly to that, to put it mildly. But uh, the thing that irritates me about it is the story, which has been making the rounds for several years now, is beginning to snowball. So that when I go to some places to speak, People come up to me and say, oh, you're looking so well. I was wondering whether you'd be able to make it, and I never expe expected you to look so well. And in fact, one or two people have called to wish me well, telephone that is, and uh, been amazed that I was able to totter to the telephone to chat with them. Well, as I say, I don't take kindly to those so-and-sos who spread those stories, and I know who they are. I would like to pass on how I feel about it in terms of a story connected with Peter Cartwright. Peter Cartwright was the greatest of the circuit riders of a century and a half ago. He was a member of Congress. In fact, the seat he held uh, was subsequently occupied by a lanky young Illinois lawyer named Abraham Lincoln. At one uh, church meeting where Peter Cartwright was speaking about loving one's enemies, he made the statement that all of us have our enemies and Nobody can say that he, there is no one he hates, no one whom he regards as his enemy. Now, is there anyone who could make such a statement? And one old man raised his hand. Peter Cartwright recognized him, and he said, Uncle Ned, do you mean you don't have a single enemy? The old man got to his feet and laughed, and he said, Nope. 
All those bastards are dead. I outlived every one of them. <laughs> I hope I can say the same someday. <laughs> well, so much for those stories. We have a little bit of time left. So on to another book by Jean Anderson, Henry the Navigator, Prince of Portugal. A very slim book, unfortunately, just 120-some pages about a very important man. All of us, when we were schoolchildren, read about Prince Henry the Navigator, whose work made possible all the exploration of Africa, Asia, and the Americas. A very remarkable man. It's something of a shock to realize that practically nothing has been written about him. That really, apart from one or two books, he has never been treated with the respect that is his due. In particular, there's almost nothing in English about Prince Henry, but he was a remarkable man. Not only as a scholar, a navigator, that is, a man who charted the seas, mapped portions of the world previously unknown, but also a very able military man. Then, too, a Christian of discernment and strength. A man of uh, character and integrity far in advance of his day. For example, he refused to take astrology seriously. He told one astrologer, and I quote, I have no doubt that astrology is a lawful science and that the terrestrial bodies are subject to the celestial. There he was being polite, let me add parenthetically, but to continue. But first and foremost, I believe that God is over all and all things are ordered by his hand, unquote. And for that reason, he refused to have anything to do with astrology. He was a very remarkable man, one of the great men of Portugal. His uh, coat of arms, by the way, bore the motto, Will to do well, will to do well. Prince Henry the Navigator. Another book, this one, a paperback, again, a, a small book of 80 pages, but very important. This is by Dr. Jerry Bergman, The Criterion, Religious Discrimination in America, published by Onesimus Publishing Company, 6245 Newton Avenue South, Richfield, Minnesota, 55423. This book, published in 1984, deals with the firing of men from departments of sciences because they are creationists men who were among the most highly regarded on the faculty until it was known they were a creationist or until they became Christian and espoused creationism. The author himself was one of these men. He describes the humiliation, the abuse, even death threats that they are subjected to and how they are systematically ousted from faculties. It's a very tragic fact, and it comes out of the academic community that claims to believe in academic freedom. It does for itself, but not for Christians. 
Another book of considerable interest, published in 1984 by Manfred Barthel, B as in boy, A-R-T-H-E-L, the Jesuits, History and Legend of the Society of Jesus, a good historical account of the Jesuits. The author has taken pains to check out all the stories. On top of that, he has allowed various Jesuit scholars to read sections of his book as he found them relevant to what that particular scholar knew most about, and where he felt perhaps he was in error to make corrections, or at least to indicate the dissent of the Jesuit scholars. In other words, it's a carefully written and a very thoughtful book. It's a remarkable story. The Jesuit order today certainly has much that can be criticized in it, and it's not the first time this has been the case. But it is seldom appreciated for what it has done. The story of Loyola himself is remarkable. He was a rake and a ruffian as a young man. He was repeatedly brought up on such charges as statutory rape, inflicting grievous bodily harm, slander, and there is a notation in the records in the Archbishop's Court at Pamplona which was celebrated for its leniency describing Loyola as treacherous, brutal, and vindictive. On top of that, there seems to be some evidence that during his days of wildness, he had contracted syphilis and had lifelong problems with it. This is the man who, when he was recovering from a very serious injury, began to read the only two, two books available, A Life of Christ and then a popular version of the Golden Legend. As a result, he began a spiritual pilgrimage that led to his conversion. At first, he went in for all kinds of ascetic practices all kinds of devotional exercises, and then gave all that up. And he banned it as far as his followers were concerned because he felt faith and action were the two things that should be linked together. The Council of Trent owed a great deal to the Jesuits. The Counter-Reformation was essentially a Jesuit movement. And one of the reasons for it was that they insisted on seeing matters realistically. For example, of the small company of original Jesuits, Father Peter Faber was the oldest of Loyola's comrades, and he went to Germany to attempt, this was uh, 1540, some years after the Reformation had begun, to attempt to counteract the work. But first he made a report on the situation there which was devastating, and a blunter statement than the Lutherans themselves have made. I quote uh, from his report to Ignatius, a small portion. It is not true that the Lutherans have caused so many to apostatize from the Roman Church simply by ensnaring them with their false doctrines. The greater blame for this development must fall upon our own clergy. God grant that there are even two or three in this city of Worms who are not living in open concubinage or are not steeped in some other form of vice. This is hardly an exaggeration, since at least 
A sizable minority of priests live openly with their mistresses, and in the rectories of these spoiled priests, you will sooner trip over a clutch of brats than books. Drunkenness, lechery, venality, and ignorance. These all a part of the typical parish priest, and so on. So, Faber said, uh, we've got to take this situation seriously. First of all, we have to have a thoroughgoing purge of the Catholic clergy before any attempt can be made to bring the Lutherans back into the fold. Well, the whole report, as uh, Father Peter Faber made it, was a masterpiece of integrity and bluntness. And as a result, vast portions of Germany that were slipping away from the Roman Church were salvaged by the Jesuits. The interesting thing is the Jesuits have been really more criticized from within the church than from outside the church, although they've had plenty of criticism from all quarters, sometimes deservedly so. And certainly, today with so much modernism among the Jesuits, they do need some shaking up. It is interesting, and this I think very sad and typical, they were asked to fight atheism in the 70s, so they appointed a commission to define atheism. This is what one denomination after another does when they're faced with a problem, a study commission to define it. Well, if you don't know what atheism is, you'll never find out from a commission nor be able to fight it. Well, our time is approaching an end. It's been good to be with you again. And I think there's a possibility of a special treat in our next easy chair. Until then, God bless you all.